Yes, indeed. Uh, Ezekiel, we are finishing our series in Ezekiel. Great to have you. I, I want to just uh, mention tonight uh, quickly, uh, Fran, do you want to just like put your hand up quickly? Okay, so if you want to practice your Spanish, uh, or you are Spanish and you want to speak Spanish, it, finally, finally you can have clarity in the church. You can speak to Fran and Mighty afterwards as we're getting there. Uh, just a further introduction to them. Mighty's an attorney in southern Spain in the city of Seville. Uh, she does family law, uh, but this is, uh, you know, some of the things we can glean from them. She's also committed her life to the Lord and so gives a huge amount of her legal um, practice to serving the evangelical church in mostly southern Spain, uh, but giving a voice to uh, the evangelical church, which, again, you know, in our context, we, we would say, why would you need a voice for the evangelical church? Because you do uh, in southern Spain. Uh, and Fran, on the other hand, he has a real interest in neurology and in psychology. And so tonight's presentation will have a strong emphasis on finding faith and hope uh, in neurology and psychology, particularly in his own personal story. We, um, less than a year ago, Franz suffered a stroke. And uh, it's very, very, very unusual for people to have 100% recovery from a stroke. So uh, we'll be sharing a little bit about that too uh, tonight. But Fran is 100% recovered. Praise the Lord on that. All right, getting to, and uh, that's at 5.30, so you're all welcome to, to come. No dinner, just awesome presentation. Yeah, great. Ezekiel, Ezekiel. Let me uh, see if you have an easy answer to something which I find uh, challenging, and that is, uh, how would you go about presenting God to your friends, family, people that may be not as enthusiastic about Jesus as you are? But how do you go about presenting Jesus to your friends and family? Or maybe I should ask, are you having a go at presenting Jesus to your friends and family? Uh, because it would be helpful just to have a few tools. I mean, I think there's two great ways of doing this. One way would be, the one is what I'd call uh, sort of the the logical way, the way that you do it in most circumstances. And it goes something like this. And I just find this very, very useful, right? Uh, you, you, you're relating with somebody and something will come up in your discussion where things aren't going great in their life. And it's a great bridge to say, well, I too have had that similar struggle. Now, it could be with your marriage. It could be raising kids. It could be with your finances. But let's just say finances. So you've got some connection point where somebody's struggling. You say, I too struggled with something similar in my finances. And I found that praying to Jesus was super helpful. And then you can give your own personal testimony of how Jesus was super helpful. I mean, it's very helpful. What I'm saying is if somebody has a need to show them how Jesus could be the solution to that need. And we all have needs, and we all have need for the Lord to help us out. So in 90% of the cases, that works just great. But in the book of Ezekiel, we got a whole different approach that God is presenting to us. And it kind of goes this way. 
God is saying, I am God. Deal with it. And you say, well, you know, I don't believe in God. Uh, you know, God is saying, I'm God. Deal with it. So people might have these big questions in life. Like, where do we come from? How did the earth start? How's the earth going to end? Is there such a thing as eternity? Is there really life after death? Or if that hasn't like, challenged your non-believing friends, or any of us for that matter, how about uh, why is there evil in this world? And uh, as you often have, would have heard if you're having these dialogues with people, if there is a God, why would God allow fill-in-the-blank evil disaster to happen? And if you were Christian, you would say, because uh, in your mind, you'd say, there is evil in this world, and it is really is a reality, and God has given us free will. And in the space of free will, we've got to deal with the consequences of our free will. But, you know, not everybody thinks on a philosophical uh, level, but you either go with what's a need, or you go with God says, I am who I am. And I created this world. And in Ezekiel, I want to um, uh, look at that uh, this morning. But as an example of somebody who did a really good job with uh, this approach was Rick Warren uh, a bunch of years ago. He wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And this book uh, had the, the craziest, most unlikely uh, surprising opening sentence. I mean, the captivating sentence for this book is, it's not about you. Okay, now, there's something counterintuitive here. You wouldn't think a book which starts off with the phrase, it's not about you, is going to be a top seller. 32 million copies sold on the New York best-selling lists for almost two years. I mean, the top-selling book, you know, in America, other than the Bible, for like almost two years. With that starter, it's not about you. When you go to the bookstore, you just see shelves and shelves about self-help, self-help. It's all about you. Self-help, more self-help, more self-help, psychology, neurology, running, uh, your favorite story, Bible. It's all about you. And then Rick writes his book, it's not about you. And that became a compelling selling idea. Well, you know what? The book of Ezekiel has that same approach. It's like, it's not about you. It's about God. And when you look at it, it's about how awesome God is and actually how loving God is. Now, for many people, myself included, Ezekiel is not my favorite book in the Bible. I've yet to find a Christian which has told me that Ezekiel is just the book. Man, they just love Ezekiel. They've bought commentaries on Ezekiel. They've memorized Ezekiel. No. You would love the Gospels. You might like Philippians because the book of joy. Uh, and I would say rightly so. You should. But you can't dismiss a book like Ezekiel. Because God is doing something profound in this book. I mean, it's like building a house. You might love hanging out in your kitchen. You might love hanging out in your bedroom. But you need to have solid foundations. Now, you don't hang around your foundations. 
but you need to have solid foundations. Now, when you read the book of Ezekiel, it's a solid foundation. We get to know God, but it might not be the book you want to dwell in, but it's still an awesome, awesome, powerful, hopeful book. Or you might come across people that said, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I got bad news for you. It's the same God in the New Testament. You better get to know the whole of God, not just a little piece of God that you want to get to know. Because sometimes we dismiss the 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 greatness, the allness of God. (laughs) Because we just like want to focus on one slither of God. Ezekiel puts us in that uncomfortable position of embracing the fullness, the totalness of God. So as we look at Ezekiel, it's not about you. It's not about your needs. It's not about your opinion. It's not about your politics. It's not about your sports. It's not about your favorite video. It's not about your best movie. It's just not about you. Ouch. But you know what? It's all about you. Because the theme that we're getting here is that God loves you, God knows you, and you are his kid. And he loves you as he loves his kid. He's got the best for you. If you will follow him and live your life according to his ways, you will be blessed. So let us uh, look then at the book of Ezekiel. And uh, let's look at a particular refrain. There's a refrain in this book that says this, Then you will know that I am God. Then something happens, and then God says, Then you will know that I am God. Now, this applies to whether you're sharing it with your friends or you're just trying to build your own faith. God is saying again and again in this book, Then you will know that I am God. In fact, he says it like 17 times in the book of Ezekiel. I mean, it's just throughout this book. And if you understand that, then you get the big framework for Ezekiel. You get where this book is going. But let me just pray as we, before we jump in here. Uh, Jesus, I, I just uh, pray that you would be with us. Lord, uh, you say in your word that we are like grass, that our beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever, and your word is the good news. So, Jesus, I just ask that you would help me to preach this morning, that uh, you would fill me with uh, your power, Lord, that your words would impart faith, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that we would be drawn to you, that we would turn to you that we would allow you to speak to us. So, Lord, uh, we just lift up your word this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. I want to look at this refrain, then you, then you will know that I am the Lord, uh, not every verse that it, that it appears in, but a bunch of them. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 7, verse 4, uh, God is talking to Israel, uh, the Jewish people as, as a whole, and he says this, I will turn my eyes away and show no pity. I will repay you for all your detestable sins. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so what's going on here? God is saying this. Listen, I've chosen you, Israel. You are my kids. I've blessed you. 
I've shown you how to live your life in a way that would be a blessing to you and that you would be a blessing to other nations. Uh, You have chosen to do your own thing. You have murdered your own children. You have worshipped everybody else's God. You've come up with all sorts of other ideas about sexuality. And uh, I am about sick of it. God said, I gave you free will. I told you how to live. You've done your own thing. And I cannot take your murdering, your sexual impropriety, your uh, worshiping of other gods any longer. And when I take an action, then you will know that I am your Lord, that I'm your God. Okay, so reality check. And then he's speaking in Ezekiel 12, 20 to Israel and Jerusalem. The cities will be destroyed and the farmland made desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then in Ezekiel 13, 14, he's speaking to the leaders, the church leaders. He's speaking specifically to false prophets. And he says this, I will break down your wall right to its foundation. And when it falls, it will crush you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You kind of get the feeling God is saying, okay, time is up. I'm sick of the way you're doing things. But when I respond, then you'll know that it's me. It's God. It's a judgment. And uh, once God has finished uh, judging his chosen people, the people he loves, uh, he then starts judging the surrounding nations. Ezekiel 25.5 to the Ammonites who cheered at Israel's desolation. And I will turn to the city of Rabab into, uh, and I will, t- re- I, will re- I will turn it, I will make it into a pasture for camels and the land of the Ammonites into a resting place for sheep and goats. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, God's speaking to the surrounding nations and he doesn't stop with just one. He's, he speaks to Edom in chapter 35, 15. You rejoiced at the desolation of Israel's territory. Now I will rejoice at yours. You will be wiped out, you people of Mount Seir and all who live in Edom. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, this is why you don't like reading Ezekiel. It's like, okay, this is like heavy stuff. But we do like the good parts. And God... uh, also gives the good parts. You know, a good way of reading a big book like Ezekiel is not to do it the way we most of us read it, which if you've got a Bible reading plan, you would say, okay, I'm doing chapter 11 today. Tomorrow I'm doing chapter 12. Uh, next time, chapter 13. Because what happens is you just get depressed. It's like, oh my gosh. A good way of reading Ezekiel would be you read like, you know, from chapter 1 to chapter 30, only like one sitting. Oh, okay. Then you pause when you see what God is saying like this in Ezekiel um, 36. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. Wait, okay. There's like hope filled in this section of what God is saying. He says, you have messed up, but you are my kids. And when you messed up, you have brought shame to my name. But 
not because you've done anything great, not because you can make any claims about your goodness, your holiness, your greatness, or whatever you can say that you've done for me, there isn't anything. But I am still going to love you, and I am going to give you hope. I'm going to do the impossible. I am going to bring you back. It's like only God. And now we're starting to connect with the New Testament. And now we're starting to connect with a God we can relate to. Because we too can say, God, we are not holy enough. We can't come to church enough. We can't say enough prayers. We can't do enough good things. We can't like uh, fast long enough. We can't do enough sacrifices for you. There's nothing that we can do that will make you love us anymore. You just love us because you created us. And we're starting to connect. And God is saying, and I love you and I have plans for your life. And God is saying to the Jewish people uh, in total destruction, telling them where they are and the desolation that they've caused. And he's saying, I'm going to give you hope. And there's two more verses in 36, 11. I will increase not only the people, but also your animals. O mountains of Israel, I will bring people to live on you once again. I will make you even more prosperous than you were before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now we love those verses. Lord, just bless me, bless me, bless me, and then I'll know that you're the Lord. You know, just God's like, yeah, well, I will bless you, and I did bless you, and I want to bless you, and I do want you to acknowledge that He is the Lord. And then Ezekiel 37, 6. Sarah did a marvelous job last week preaching this section. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will breathe into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When the Lord does the most impossible things possible, when he heals us, when he restores us, when he takes us from being as good as dead to being filled with the Lord and excited, we should be able to testify that the Lord is good and that we believe in the Lord. So Ezekiel shows us, as we look at this wonderful book, these facets of God, which sometimes we bypass if we miss reading the Old Testament. But we get the idea that God is holy and he's holy other. God is holy. The Bible starts with these four amazing words. In the beginning, God. Notice it doesn't say, in the beginning, Chris. In the beginning, Susie. In the beginning, Dave. No, it's not about you. It's about God. In the beginning, God. God created. I mean, it's just an awesome way of starting. The focus is on God, and it should never leave God. Uh, that's a great way to understand it. Uh, if we understand God as this loving father who desires to bless us, his kids, we stand in good shape. But if we take the idea that it's all about us and somehow or other we just need God in our back pocket to bless us, not a good direction to go in. In the beginning, God, chapter 16 in Ezekiel, God compares Israel and he could compare us with Jerusalem, the capital city, being like an unfaithful wife. And God is saying, but I have been faithful and I still love you. And although you've done everything possible to offend me, I have made a covenant 
in the Old Testament with the Jewish people. And I am going to stick, God's talking, to my covenant. And I will continue to hold faithful to my part of the bargain, even though you have not proved one bit faithful. And in the New Testament, the New Covenant, uh, God is uh, expressing that love through Jesus and saying he will remain faithful. But in Ezekiel 36, 22, it says this, I am bringing you back, not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name. Now, I want to um, look at the ending of the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel ends in a most unusual and strange way. Let me just read the last sentence to you in this book. The distance around the entire city will be six miles. And from that day, the name of the city will be the Lord is there. Okay, this is a very interesting way to end this book. Why? Why is this so strange? Well, look at the buildup. Uh, the end of this whole big book, God is saying, okay, you've been in desolation. I've judged you, but there's hope. I'm going to restore you. And then God gets very specific in chapter 48, the last chapter. He tells them how they need to divide the land and who's going to live where and where the boundaries are. And then he even says, you need to set some apart as holy, not just all equal. And then it ends with the gates of the city and it starts cross-referencing to Revelation. You start seeing the 12 gates uh, in Revelation that's mentioned here. And then the last sentence, the distance around the city will be six miles. And from that day, the name of the city will be the Lord is there. Wait, why not Jerusalem? we got Jerusalem everywhere. we got Jerusalem as the holy city. And he doesn't end that way. He says, the name will not be Jerusalem. The name will be the Lord is there. Now, it kind of leaves you hanging. It's like, wait, there's got to be a sequel. I mean, it's like a great movie. It's like Star Wars. I mean, like, okay, there's got to be more. What do you mean the Lord is there? What does the Lord is there mean? Why didn't he use Jerusalem? And I think Ezekiel is very intentional about that. Because the Lord will be there. Uh, the big idea here is this. For many of you, you know your uh, Hebrew, you're familiar with the word Salem. Uh, Salem meaning peace. It actually means peaceful or complete. And so the word Jerusalem uh, is supposed to be the place that's peaceful or complete. And the interesting thing about this word uh, Salem is that it's both Arabic and Hebrew. And it both means the same thing in both languages. And yet, God is saying, I chose Jerusalem. This is supposed to be a place of peace. That is supposed to be the place of perfection. You violated it. But now we're going to try again. And I'm going to rebuild my temple there. Which they did. And uh, that didn't work out too well. And then we have, as we move into Lent and into this new uh, Lenten season, building up to Easter, we realize that this was the place where Jesus finished his ministry, where he was crucified, where we receive the hope of the New Testament, where we see God's love in a very personal way. But, you know, just like in our own town in Massachusetts, we've got Salem. Now, I don't know when you think of Salem, I don't know if the first image that comes to you is peaceful. I mean, maybe uh, witchcraft or witches or you know, trying to find God's peace. 
in other ways, uh, yeah, I think that that might come to mind. But God is saying, as he finishes this book, the Lord is there. In other words, you will experience God's peace and God's joy because the presence of God is going to be there. And we've also realized as we've lived out this prophecy and seen the temple be rebuilt, that God is then in the New Testament saying it's not about Jerusalem. It's about the Spirit of God being poured out into you and into me where God gives us the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do a whole sermon series on this right after Easter. So look forward to that. But God is saying something very clearly, and I want uh, to make this point very, very clearly to you. God is saying this. He loves you, and he believes in you. And when I say you, I mean you personally, me personally. Now, just pause for a second. Has there ever been anybody in your life who has said to you, I believe in you? Maybe it's been a school teacher. Now, if you're academically smart, look, lots of people would have said, I believe in you. It just doesn't really mean that much because you're smart. I mean, that's what they do. Or if you're a great athlete and somebody says, well, I believe in you. I'm going to draft you. I'm... Well, that's good, but it doesn't really make a big impact to you because you believe in yourself. I mean, you're a great athlete. But it's a different thing if you're not academically smart and a teacher comes up to you and says, I believe in you. Or you're not the greatest athlete and a coach comes up to you and says, I believe in you. That starts having impact. It starts impacting our soul. When a parent loves their kids, it's one of the things you're instilling in your kid again and again, and you should be instilling in your kid, is that you believe in them. You can see their strong points. You can see their weak points. But you look for those strong points and you amplify them and you tell your kid that you believe in him. This is what God is doing to us. He's saying, I believe in you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. Uh, sometimes it's the profound impact that a Sunday school teacher has on a kid or a youth leader has on a teen where they're not fitting in or they're not like matching up, but the Sunday school teacher can see past and they can see what God is doing in that kid or just the fact that God loves every one of us. And they start believing in that kid and building that kid up and showing some respect for that kid and finding that kid's self-worth and helping that teenager to be who God wants him to be in their awkwardness and in their weirdness and in their wonderfulness. You can like press in and say, there's something in here that God wants to bring alive. And it's our delight and our privilege as coaches, as parents, as grandparents, as people are part of this church to believe in each other and to see what God is doing in each person because God loves every one of us. And each one of us wants to be believed in. You know, the strange thing is, it doesn't end when you're a teenager. You know, you can be 50 years old. You still want somebody to believe in you. And God wants to be the one that believes in you. And God is saying in this book, in Ezekiel, he's pushing it forward and he's saying, Jewish people, I believe in you. 
And as we advance the story forward uh, to Jesus, Jesus showing us the love of the Father, and Jesus saying, I believe in you. And he's creating a thing called the church so that we can experience God's love through each other and directly from him. And so one of the challenges that God gives us is to say, who can we invest our lives in? Who can we believe in? And you know what happens? It's an awesome thing. We start being blessed as we believe in somebody else. And, you know, one of the things I just love about our church is that, I mean, this is the best church in the world. Let me just tell you that. All right? And the reason this is the best church in the world is because you're part of it. I mean, it's just as simple as that. You know, of all the different places I travel, I love this church the most. It's the best church because obviously you're right here. Now, I just also see the tremendous amount of love that people have, that they believe in other people. And there's a lot of space and a lot of grace for people to be like less than perfect in this church. Uh, and yet we're saying, okay, God, let's like love them. Let's, uh, you know, work through them. Uh, but it's a two-way street. We get blessed as we love on others. And we are blessed as people love on us. And so I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to experience God's love afresh, that he really loves you. And he believes in you. I don't care how old you are. God is still talking to you. God is still saying to you as a 70-year-old, I believe in you. Rise up. Be empowered. Be equipped. I believe in you. You know, there's a, a population group that, uh, I don't know why. This is a little fun for me, but God has just been putting in my heart. And it's those people that aren't here yet. And they're in the age between 20 and 26. Uh, in fact, we had a few of them uh, in our church. I, I was almost going to ask you to raise your hand, but we, we're so. <laughs> Tracy, you are not 26. I know you want to be. <laughs> Tracy put up both hands. She was so excited about being 26. And the reason I don't want to ask the 20 to 26 year olds to put up their hand, because there are not that many of them, and then they're going to feel like, okay, I'm ganging up on them. But, you know, this age group, it's an age group that we could be saying, hey, when we see somebody in our church, could we invite them over for lunch? Could we encourage them? Could we believe in them? Could we uh, even figure out how we can press into them and help them and love them? And now I know it's a little awkward because the 25-year-old, 4-year-old is saying, okay, now I'm in the spotlight. Everybody's going to invite me over to lunch. And what are we actually going to say? And how's this going to work? I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. But I do know this. We do want to believe in you. We want to be able to help this age group, all age groups in our church. But I think this particular age group, I think God is saying this, we're going to have a season where we want to press in and make an effort to help, to come alongside, to believe in them and to help them. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? We all need to be believed in. I'm going to end uh, there. Why don't we have the worship team come on up? Uh, let me just uh, summarize what God is saying as they come up, because God is promising three things in context to the people. He said, I am going to have you come out of exile, out of your suffering, out of your misery, and I'm going to allow you to rebuild my temple so that you can experience my presence there. Uh, and Jesus, uh, I mean, God is saying to them, when my presence disappeared from the temple, nobody noticed. Now that you're living the way you're living, you're going to desire my presence. So God says, but look to the future when the presence of God is poured out, which is Pentecost, 
And God is going to be pouring out His Spirit. He pours out His Spirit again and again. And then He says, look past that as well, where we're going to be looking to eternity, where God is going to be pouring out His presence. We'll be in His presence and desire that. So Lord Jesus, I just pray for you and your people. I, I just pray, Lord, that you would impart your love right now as we stand and as we worship you, that we would experience your love, Lord, and that we would experience the fact that you have purpose for each one of us, Lord, and that uh, you desire that we experience that we are loved by you, but also that we are used by you to love others. Lord, show us how and who and where do we serve in children's ministry or in youth, Show us, Lord God, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Why don't you